following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we're going to be looking in uh, 1 Peter again, chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 12. So uh, we'll begin by reading the passage for today, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 12. Uh, let's, uh, let's read. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, I've entitled this uh, message uh, that God may be glorified, really taking it right out of uh, that, um, that passage there. At the end, the last, uh, the last verse 11, uh, that God may be glorified in everything. Um, uh, uh, the song that we just sang reminds me of kind of the theme verse of, of 1 Peter, which is in 1 Peter 2.9, where, where Peter writes, uh, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of, of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious or marvelous light, right? Uh, God saved us. He called us out of darkness, not just to save us, but so that we would proclaim his excellencies, right? That we would live a life, uh, both in word and in the way we live, that glorifies God, right? And uh, he says in verse 11, back in chapter 4, that in everything God may be glorified. Uh, is that the is that the driving passion of your life? Well, it should be, right? That's that's at the heart of why God created us, why He made us, why He saved us, why He will call us to live with Him for eternity in heaven, right? Uh, our as the West, I think it's the Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man is to live for themselves. No, 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 that's not right. Uh, no, the chief end of man is what is to Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay. Uh, that is what we were created for. And if that's what we were made for, uh, then we know that uh, doing that, fulfilling that, accomplishing that, will be the thing that gives us greatest joy and purpose in life. Right? Uh, so uh, so Paul, uh, Paul Peter says you know, that God may be glorified in everything. Uh, and in the context of, of this passage, uh, the everything uh, specifically means everything in the life of the church. And as we'll see, he's speaking here to, uh, to people who are the, a local fellowship of believers, a local church. And, uh, and specifically, he's talking about how they minister and serve one another so that everything they do as a body of Christ together, it would, it would be God-glorifying. 
right? So the, uh, it's not only the, the highest purpose and goal of, of each of us as individuals, but ultimately it's the, it's the great calling of the church, right? So we gather this morning. Why do we gather this morning? Well, I hope you come uh, with this single focus and purpose of giving glory to God, right? And, and so we do that on Monday, uh, on Sunday morning, Monday morning, whatever day today is, Sunday morning, <laughs> uh, by what? Well, we come, we worship, we call this a worship service. Right? We don't call it a teaching service or an instruction service or how to live your life better service. We call it a worship service because we gather ultimately to give glory to God. And we do it by hearing him uh, speak from his word and then responding as we sing praises hopefully with a gen- genuine heart of worship and joyful, joyful heart, right? That's why we're here, and I hope that's why you're here. That's how we arrange our time together, so that we would worship God. Uh, and so it is an important and really the main reason we gather as a group. But what's interesting in this passage, as you read, as we read through this passage, how many times does he mention the word singing or giving praise? Does he, does he mention that at all? No, not once, right? Not once. Uh, and in fact, Peter really has a much broader vision of what worship is. And believe it or not, Peter has this crazy idea that you can actually worship God on some day other than Sunday morning at church. Whoa. Like, that's radical, right? Like, you can actually worship God not in church on Sunday morning. Oh, my goodness. But the context is that we worship God as the church, right? As the local body, right? Um, so he has this vision of glorifying God in everything. And by that he really means the, the ongoing life of the church together. right? Not just what we do on Sunday morning, but actually what we do all week long as we interact and relate to each other as the body of Christ, the church. Right? So, so how do we do this? How do we at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand, how do we glorify God in everything as a, as a local fellowship, as a church. Well, uh, Peter's going to give us four things that we can do, that we should be doing, that we must be doing, if we are going to glorify him in everything. Right? So let's see what Peter has to say to us about uh, glorifying God as the body of Christ. Uh, first, he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I would summarize that into the simple phrase, um, uh, focus prayer. We, we glorify God by our focused prayers for each other. Focus prayer. So uh, let's take the first phrase he mentions first, the end is near. Uh, this is a kind of a theme throughout the book of Peter. Uh, it's a church that's suffering, that's dealing with hardship. And he keeps before them this truth, this reality, that someday Jesus is going to return and that's going to bring about the end of everything. The end of life on earth as we know it, right? Um, it speaks of, of the return of Christ, of his judgment, of both the, the redeemed and the unredeemed, the saved and the lost, uh, and ultimately the destruction of this world and the creation of a, creation of a new heaven and earth. So when he's talking about the end, he means like really the end of planet Earth, right? It's not going to end because of global warming. Well, it is going to be global warming, but not man-caused. It's going to be divine global warming that's going to scorch the Earth and dissolve it to nothing, 
right? Uh, so one of the things, though, that throws people off uh, is this phrase, the end is near. The end is at hand. It's almost here. Okay? Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, almost. And uh, so, like, 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 what kind of calendar is he using, right? If near means 2,000 years, right? Well, uh, that throws a lot of people off. But the, the issue is that we don't understand the nature of prophecy, right? We tend to think in terms of calendars, in terms of timelines, in terms of counting down the minutes, right? But that's not the way prophecy worked. And even in the Old Testament, prophetic utterances and prophetic visions were, were just kind of thrown out as, this is the next thing that will happen. And after that will be this thing, right? And when he says it's at hand, what he's really saying is that on the prophetic calendar, the next thing that happens is the end. Right? There's nothing in between. Because the next big event that's going to happen is Jesus' return in the end in terms of these prophetic events, right? these big events. And so the, the idea really is, is that it is imminent. Okay? And there's two ways to look at it. Imminent can mean it's, it's coming soon. Or imminent can also mean it can come suddenly without warning. And that's really the idea here. The idea is that the end is imminent. It's going to come suddenly and without warning. So kind of a parallel would be uh, the difference between an alarm clock and a fire alarm, right? What does an alarm clock do? Well, you set the alarm at night before you go to bed, and it starts counting down the minutes and seconds until 5.30 in the morning or whenever, 6.30 in the morning, when it goes off and it tells you it's time to get up, right? It counts down time to a, to a finish. But a fire alarm, does a fire alarm count down the time? No, right? The fire alarm is ready always to go off at any time it's needed, right? To warn us of danger. So... Uh, what he's talking about here is Christ coming more like a fire alarm. It could happen any time, right? And the point is really, are you living your life ready and expecting the end to come at any time, right? This is not New Year's. We're not counting down. We're not predicting saying, at the end of 2023, Jesus is going to return. Lots of people have done that and been horribly embarrassed because it didn't happen, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're not counting down the time. We're living in the reality that the end could come at any time. It could come this afternoon. It could come tomorrow. It could come in a month. So the question is, are you living as people who are ready when it comes? Right? That's the parables that Jesus told in the Gospels, right? The ten virgins and, and others. Are you ready so that when Jesus comes, you're not caught doing something you're not supposed to? And in fact, you're caught doing the things you are supposed to. That's the point of this, right? Are you living the way you want to be living so that when Jesus shows up, he's like, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not, what are you doing, you goofball? We don't want to be that. We want to be ready, prepared. And so that's the idea here. And so really, all the things that he mentions are, are what we're supposed to be doing. What are we supposed to be doing when Jesus shows up? Well, one of the things, the first thing is to have focused prayer, right? And the idea here, he, he, he says, um, he uses two words. He says, be, um, be self-controlled and sober-minded. It kind of gets lost in the translation, but both of these words are actually words that have to do with our thinking. They're thinking words. Uh, the first one has the idea of not so much self-controlled as much as 
in our actions as much as in our thinking. Right? To have a pure and clean mind because we're guarding and, and disciplining our thought life. Right? Uh, so we need, to, we need to not just be looking good on the outside, but we need to have, uh, be, be morally pure and clean even in our thought life. Right? The second th- word to use is sober-minded. And this word literally, literally could be translated being sober, like not hungover, not with your mind cloudy because of the effects of alcohol, but sober. Uh, and it can use, be used figuratively. It kind of got expanded to mean really just clear-headed. Right? Not foggy, not groggy, not uh, numb because of drugs or alcohol, but sharp, clear, thinking with clarity. Right? And he says that we're to, to have this, this, this kind of mind that's pure and alert, uh, directed towards our prayers, or as we engage in prayers. I really the picture here is that to pray effectively begins with the right kind of thinking thinking that is self-controlled, that is not being corrupted by the lust and all the junk that he talked about in, in, in the previous verses that we looked at last week, right? Our thoughts are pure. They're focused on God. They're focused on His holiness. They're focused on His will. And there's a certain clarity about our thinking. We're not half asleep, right? We're vigilant. We're alert. We're looking for the return of Christ. We're looking for His kingdom. We're looking for Him to work in our lives. And, and it's that, that mindset, that thinking that makes our prayers effective. So one of the things we see here is that effective prayer is directly related to how you think and live. Right? And he's actually said this, this is the third time he's made this reference in the book. Right? He tells husbands, you know, treat your wives with understanding for the sake of your prayers. Right? He says, live a holy life for the sake of your prayers. Here he says, think rightly for the sake of your prayers. Right? Um, I have people talk to me all the time and say, but I had somebody just tell me this, well, I prayed and it didn't work, right? I prayed and God did not answer. Now, what I always want to say is, well, it's because your life's a disaster, right? Like, of course God doesn't answer your prayers. Look at your life, right? And that's what Peter says here, right? If God's not answering your prayers, it's because you're not living like you're supposed to. You're not thinking with his mind. Of course God doesn't answer your prayers, right? God promises to answer our prayers. But it doesn't mean we can just cast up wishes to God and live any way we want. It doesn't work that way. Do you want God to answer your prayers? You need God to answer your prayers. Alright? You need God to be answering your prayers. I need God to be answering my prayers because I can't do life on my own. I need God's help. And I need to be able to pray and I need to see God work and answer those prayers. You want to see God answer prayers in your life, uh, apply these principles, right? Clean up your mind. Clean up your life. Get alert. Get in the Word, right? Get your mind focused on Him. And you'll be amazed at how God will answer your prayers. I promise you. I promise you. Well, forget my promise. Who cares if I promise you? God promises you, right? God promises you that He will answer your prayers. He will attend to you, and he will work. All right, that's the first one. So pray with this focus, this clarity of mind and focus. Second thing, uh, second thing above all, keeping love, uh, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Second thing, he says, you need to be loving one another as the body of Christ, as the church, as a local fellowship of believers. To put it specifically, you all in this room, as part of Ching Mai Christian Fellowship, need to be loving each other in this room. Right? Like we can make this so generic, it doesn't mean anything. What Peter means is love the person sitting next to you and in the row in front of you and three rows back. Right? Love those people. Right? And he, he says, he says, above all, above everything. Like this is number one top priority if you are a follower of Christ. That you are loving the body of Christ. Specific people that you worship and fellowship with in a local congregation. Right? This is the highest priority for every believer. Love one another earnestly. Right? Earnestly. Um, and remember, the, the reason behind all this is the very glory of God. Right? The glory of God will be manifest, will be evident, visible in the church by how we treat each other, by how we love each other. Right? His glory shines uh, like the sun piercing through the clouds on a rainy day when we actually love each other. Right? John 13.35, Jesus told his disciples, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, when, when the world looks at the church, is this what gets most frequently said about the church, about the local church? Right? Is this what gets written about in newspapers and what people talk about? Wow, I don't know about what those Christians are, but what I see is that they really love each other. Is that what people say? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Right? That is not what people say. What do people say? Well, they just fight, they get along, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Right? Now granted, sometimes people outside the church... Uh, may not have the best perception and view, but there's some truth, right, in their judgment of the church. Because all too often, the church is full of divisions and fighting and and hurt, right? And people are not loving one another. And we know, you know, we know what love is, right? It means caring for each other. It means helping each other when people need help. It means serving each other. Uh, building each other up and encouraging each other, uh, giving to the needs of those who have physical or material needs. Um, it means simple things like treating each other with kindness, patience, humility, and grace. Right? Like, is that what characterizes your relationships with other believers? And he says that we're, we're to love each other, above all, love each other earnestly, diligently. Right, the word here actually literally comes from the root word that means to stretch out. Right, to stretch out your hand or to stretch yourself out. And I love that picture because it's this idea that loving is not easy. Right? Loving other people is not easy. Okay, there's a reason why we have to be instructed often about this. Because it's not easy to do this. It is actually stretching yourself. Right? It's going out of your comfort zone. It's doing things that you would not naturally and normally do. Right? It's, it's, it takes effort. Right? It has to be done earnestly, diligently. It takes effort. It takes stretching ourselves to love other people. The way, um, really, the way God loves us. 
And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Did Jesus love us by staying in his comfort zone? Right? Did he stay in heaven and say, well, I love you all. I'll just sit up here and, and drink my Kool-Aid while you guys all just kill each other. But I love you. No, right? He left heaven and he came to earth. And he took on human flesh and he became one of us and he served us. Right? The ultimate picture of his serving is in John 13. Uh, right? John 13, 1, it says this, Now, before the Feast of Passover, and this is the night when Jesus is betrayed, right? This is like his last night on earth before he's arrested and taken to the cross, right? It says, Now, before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father by way of the cross, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Uh, those, I could do a whole sermon just on that verse. It's an amazing verse. But it really talks about Jesus showing the fullest possible expression of love. Right? Taking love to its absolute furthest degree. And of course, that's a reference to the cross. Right? Greater love has no man than that he lay down his life for his friends. Right? That's, that's how Jesus stretched out to love us. Right? Uh, but, but then it kind of jumps back into the upper room at the Passover meal with the disciples. It says, during supper, Jesus did what? Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment, his teacher robes, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist like a common everyday house slave. That's what that picture is, right? He became a house slave. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Right? Uh, was that comfortable? Right? Was that comfortable? Jesus take off his, I'm the rabbi teacher, you all do what I tell you, to becoming a slave, getting down on his knees, washing their feet, right? putting himself really under them in both status and position, and he served them. Right? And it was an amazing picture really of the cross of how Jesus served us, not just by washing our feet from road grit and grime, but of washing our soul from sin, right? Uh, of, of dying on the cross, of serving us to that extent, right? And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's the kind of love we are to be displaying towards each other in the church, in the body of Christ, right? It is a stretch, it is a stretch. Right? Um, and then, to, if, if that's not enough, then he goes on and he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the possible explanations of what this verse could mean, and we're not actually sure. It's a little vague. Uh, how exactly does our loving cover sin? Well, ultimately, Jesus covers sin by his blood alone, right? So I can't redeem your sin. I can't cover your, the guilt of your sin by loving you. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that. Uh, but maybe it means something like uh, when we love, we are more forgiving. Like we don't hold on to those sins. So we, we let them go. We cover them over with our forgiveness. Uh, it could mean that as we love each other, it removes the opportunity to sin. Um, so, you know, it kind of works like this in these relationships. It's hard, right? And maybe somebody misunderstands something I said or did and they get super angry at me. 
And they come and they just start yelling at me. And I have a couple ways I could respond. I could yell back. Well, you're the moron who didn't understand. I didn't mean that. I didn't do that. I could yell back. Um, Is that love covers a multitude of sins? No, that's gas on the fire to make the sins spread, right? Or I could respond by saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you misunderstood. I'm sorry you thought that's what I said. Please forgive me, right? I can respond in love, and I, I diffuse that path. I, I short-circuit that path towards sin and selfishness and pride. So maybe that's what it means. Uh, there, may, there are some other things that could be meant by covers a multitude of sins. But what we know this, what, I, what we do know is this. When we're, when we're called to love others, we're not called to love perfect people. We're not called to love people who are puppy dogs, who are adorable, cute, cuddly, and easy to love. Right? We're, we're called to love people who sin. People who don't always have their lives together. People who, who mess up. And sometimes those, their sins are toward us, involve us, hurt us. Right? That's who we're supposed to love. Uh, that's the context of love. In a, in a community where we're not perfect. We are forgiven. Hopefully we are being sanctified. Hopefully we are growing and maturing to be more like Christ. But we're not there yet. And so, oftentimes we have to love people who are very unlovable. Who get on our nerves. Who are annoying. Who rub us the wrong way. Who fail us and disappoint us. And how do we respond to those people? Do we get angry? Do we feel hurt? Do we feel disrespected? Do we try to get even? Do we get defensive? Or do we love them? Right? Forbearing with one another. Right? Uh, that's the kind of love he's talking about. Okay, so praying with focused attention for each other. Secondly, love one another. Um, uh, third thing, um, he says... Uh, Show, showing hospitality, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the third thing we do is we show hospitality. Um, uh, this love that he's talking about uh, happens in the context of relationships, right? And uh, these relationships happen because of hospitality. Right? We, if, we're not, if we're not hospitable, we're, we're not able to build the relationships we need to to actually exercise and show this kind of love. So he says, you've got to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And hospitality has the idea of opening up your home and life to other people, to welcoming them, and not only to families and best friends, but ultimately to strangers, right? And maybe especially towards those who are strangers. In fact, the word, uh, the, the Greek word for hospitality is, is actually a combination of two words, the first word is the word philo, and it's the word we get like Philadelphia, brotherly love, right? It has this idea of brotherliness, right? And then the second word is the word xenos, which means a stranger. So you put those two words together, it's showing brotherly kindness to strangers. That's what hospitality ultimately means. Um, uh, if, if you're here in Chiang Mai, I promise you that unless you were born here, there's a few of you who are native Hi, people. But for the rest of you, for the rest of us who came here, when we came here, we were strangers. Right? 
And certainly the first time you showed up at CCF, you were a stranger. You probably didn't know anybody. And probably nobody knew you. Right? And, and the only way you get past that is for somebody to extend hospitality, to welcome you, to ask you your name, to find out who you are. Right? The only way we can move from being a stranger to a friend is through the channel of hospitality. Um, and, and, and the point here is, is you can't love the body of Christ without hospitality. Right? You can't love from a distance. You have to get up close enough to be engaged and involved in their life. And I'm so thankful that uh, for the most part, for the most part, uh, this is a welcoming church. And I hear people say, yeah, I felt so welcomed. I, people talk to me. Every once in a while I get an angry email from somebody who tells me how they just got ignored at church. It just breaks my heart, right? And sometimes people fall through the cracks and... Um, uh, it's, un- it's sad, right? But we don't want to be that kind of church. We want to be a church that's welcoming. That when people come their first Sunday here, they, they, they find that they're in a family, they're, they're in a place where they are loved and accepted and welcomed, right? And I love all the fellowship and hospitality that happens here on Sunday morning, right? Uh, and this is how it works. The worship leaders say, hey, turn to somebody and greet them, right? And it's like herding cats getting everybody back, right? Because get all excited, fellowshipping, right? And I love after, after church, people just don't empty and go out and get their cars and leave. You go out and people are talking, they're fellowshipping. That's awesome, right? And that's, uh, that's what God wants. He wants us getting to know each other, engaging, connecting with people. Uh, um, so, so that kind of hospitality on Sunday morning is critical, vital to how we start the process of loving each other. But that is not enough, right? That is not enough. Hospitality can't just be welcoming people on Sunday morning, right? Ultimately, the word hospitality means opening up your home. That's really what it meant, right, in, in, in the Bible context. They opened up their home to strangers. They actually let people sleep in their house because they didn't have hotels, right? Many of them actually opened up their home for church services, right? It means opening up your home. And, and, and uh, ultimately, hospitality has to extend beyond just a Sunday morning meeting. Right? Love can't just happen at a two-hour time block on Sunday morning. Okay? It's, that's, it doesn't work that way. Right? Acts, 240, Acts chapter 2, we get this great picture of the early church when it, when it was first birthed. Right? right after Pentecost. It says, And day by day... They were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, Just so you know, the early church was not, uh, the church in Jerusalem at Pentecost was not a small little house church, right? It says something like 3,000 people got saved on the first day and then thousands more later. Chances are, when they got together at the temple, there could have been a crowd of five to 10,000 people. It was a megachurch, instantly, right? So the first church, people are kind of against megachurches for good reasons, maybe, I don't know. But here's the reality. The very first church was a megachurch. 10,000 people showed up, right? How much fellowship happened with 10,000 people, right? There's limits, right? There's limits when you're, Churches of church of ten thousand or five thousand, 
It's just hard to remember everybody's name. I don't know, maybe they wore name tags. Or maybe they had a slideshow with their pictures. I don't know. Um, but obviously, uh, the connection of, of close community where relationships could take place could not happen at the temple with 10,000 people. So what did they do? Well, it says, and, and they were breaking bread in their homes every day. Right? So they broke off in small groups. And they connected and they opened their homes and they shared a meal together. Right? On Sunday, even here, we don't have 10,000, uh, but even here, the crowd is too big and the time is too short. Loving people requires opening our homes and inviting them in during the week. Right? It means connecting with, you, with each other beyond just Sunday morning. And really, the picture here is sharing all of life. Uh, and I love this picture of, of sharing life with people around the table, right? in relationship, in meals together. And it doesn't mean that's the only place, but just a great picture, right, of connecting with people uh, by inviting them to your home, having a meal. It's, it's a relationship with the whole person in all of their life and with the whole family, right? So you invite families in your home and you connect with the little kids up to the old people, right? It's multi-generational. It's all of life and all that is involved with people, right? I know here in Chiang Mai it's different. This is a different place. People come and go uh, way too fast, and it's hard sometimes to keep up with people. It is extra challenging here. And people come from many different languages and cultures, and um, sometimes you want to you wanna fellowship with somebody, and you know you just don't speak the same language, and you can't, right? It's a stretch, but are you making the effort, right? Are you making the effort to engage with the body of Christ outside of just Sunday morning? Right? Are you building relationships with people in the body of Christ where there is community and fellowship and hospitality? Uh, in small groups, in, in having meals together, in playing together. You can do this, actually. Uh, anybody want to play pickleball? I just I just discovered pickleball. It's the funnest thing ever. I think a great way to have fellowship over pickleball, right? Or, I don't know, taking a hike or uh, doing life together, right? And remember, this, this, is, this is not just, well, if I have time. You know, I'm a busy person. I'm involved in serious ministry. I don't have time for this. <laughs> uh, Peter is saying here, that God may be glorified in everything. Like, there's nothing more important for you than this. Right? Now, there's a lot of things that are maybe as important, but this is not optional. Right? This is not optional. Loving people in the body of Christ is what we are required to do for the very sake of God's glory. Right? Are we taking it seriously? And not only that, but he says you have to do it with a good attitude. Without <laughs> grumbling, right? Well, I'm having these people over for dinner. Uh, <laughs> why them, right? With a good attitude, right? Loving people earnestly means we work at it. It is, it is messy. There might be a lot to grumble and complain about, right? It is messy. People are complicated. This is not easy, right? It, it takes time. It takes effort. It may take money. Uh, not doing it grudgingly or grumbling, but with a joyful attitude. We are 
sharing our life with other people and loving them. Fourth thing, last one. Uh, we need to minister to one another. Minister to one another. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or diverse grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Each one of us has received a gift. Uh, And by gift, he means here a a unique ability or um, way to serve and minister to the body of Christ. It's part of uh, our salvation package. So when you first put your faith in Christ, you get this whole salvation package that's delivered to you instantly. You get forgiveness of sin. You get new life. You are born again. You are given uh, the filling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you are given a gift. right? And he says this gift is, is to be used according to the strength that God supplies. And the word strength here really has the idea of the capability. right? Um, the bestowing a gift in, includes everything you need to use it effectively. right? So the ability to do it with success. And this ability is God-given, not just something you were born with. It's not it has nothing to do with your DNA. Right? It's a God-given a capacity or ability uh, that you are to use to bless others. And it says that he actually supplies, it's, it's, a, it's a strength that he supplies or that he provides. And the word in the Greek that's used for this is uh, a word that originally meant to sponsor a, a chorus in a drama. It's like if you had a lot of money and, and the local town was putting on a play at the theater, they would come to you and say, would you sponsor the chorus, the, the singers? Right? Would you pay for their lunch and their salary? Right? And so it was a picture of God's lavish and generous provision, abundant provision. So this gift is not some little weak, little flimsy thing. God supplies this ability with abundance, abundance. He gives you everything you need to do this well and successfully. And it's, it's, it's to be exercised really apart from any natural abilities. I mean, it may connect with your natural talents and abilities, but it's beyond that. Right? So it says we need, to, we need to use it to serve one another. Now, what happens in the church, because we have become kind of a world of experts and we, we pay people for their expertise... Uh, this is how, unfortunately, kind of worked out on the church. We, we had this idea that ministry in the church is to be left to the professionals, like the guys that get paid, like the guy up front, me. Like, you know, he went to school, he went to seminary, he reads Greek, you know, he's, he's studied this, he's prepared, he's been a Christian a long time. And so he's qualified, but I'm not qualified because I've never been to Bible college. I've only been a believer for a month, right? Well, the good news is this. It doesn't say here, use this gift as you have the opportunity to go to seminary and get trained and have an internship and spend 25 years learning how to use it in the church. That's not what it says. He says, God's given you a gift. Use it now. Right now. Every one of you, if you're in Christ, you have a gift and you are to be using it right now 
for the benefit and ministry of the whole body. Now, sure, you can get training. Sure, you can develop it. Sure, you can grow it. But it's not dependent on going to school. It's not dependent on training. It's not depending on being a Christian for 75 years. It's dependent on the power of God. Right? That He has poured out in you so that you can use it now. Right? So it doesn't matter if you're 10 years old or 110 years old, if you've been a Christian for one month or for 900 years, like me, right? Um, you can have a ministry and you are supposed to have a ministry in the church. Okay, that may not be in Sunday morning, but a ministry within the context of the body. Right? And he says that this is a stewardship, right? The word steward has the idea of a household manager who's put in charge of, of, of managing a rich person, a wealthy person's house. So he's got staff, he's got resources, he's got money, he's got a bank account, credit card, right? And his He's to use all these resources to manage this wealthy person's house. And one day the, the, the rich person is going to come and he's going to say, how have you been managing all of this uh, to make my house better? Right? If things are falling apart, if it's not clean, he's going to say, what did you do with all the staff and money I gave you? Oh, well, I, went, I went on a vacation to the beach. Right? No, no, you use it to improve the house. Right? And we're, we're managers, we're stewards of this gift to improve the house, the body of Christ, the temple. And we will give an account. Right? Uh, so this, we've been given this gift, and it is ultimately a supernatural ministry. Right? And he, 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 used, he breaks it into two broad categories. The first category, he says, speaking. Uh, so that involves all the teaching gifts. Uh, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Uh, the word oracles of God literally means as those who are speaking divine revelation. Right? So for all the teaching gifts, whether you're a teacher, preacher, evangelist, whatever the teaching kind of gives, giving words of wisdom, right? words of knowledge, those are all speaking gifts, uh, you are to speak as one who's speaking divine revelation, a word from God. Right? Uh, now this is not just a matter of being super confident. Right? And it doesn't, it doesn't mean I stand up and say, God told me to say... Uh, no. What it means is I'm speaking divine revelation because I'm actually speaking divine revelation. Where does divine revelation come from? The Bible, right? This is divine revelation. Right? It means as those who are speaking God's word clearly and accurately and faithfully. Right? Um, unfortunately, we live in a time when we want teachers who speak as those who are relevant not as those who are speaking revelation. Okay, it's just flipping a couple letters there. You get relevant instead of revelation. Right? We, want, we want relevant teachers. In other words, we want people who tell us how to live our life better. Well, uh, sometimes God's word, well, actually always God's word is relevant, but it may not feel very relevant, right? Because sometimes God speaks truth in ways that confronts our sin and is very uncomfortable. Sometimes God's word speaks encouragement and hope, right? But it has effectiveness and power because it's God's word. It's not just people's opinions or the latest uh, fad in psychology. We need people who speak as those who are speaking divine revelation, who are teaching the word with 
power and authority because it's filled with the Holy Spirit, not just with man's ideas. Right? Uh, unfortunately, we're, 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 we, we, we become consumers who want messages that are entertaining instead of messages that confront us in our sin and selfishness and pride and that lead us to God's grace and redeeming power in Christ. Because that's the first one, uh, the teaching ministries. But then, there's, he says, the second group, he says, um, uh, well, one, serving with the power of God, right? Serving. Um, serving with the power of God. And this he lumps all the other gifts, uh, all those non-teaching or non-speaking gifts. So it can be things like administration, discernment, faith, giving, healing, praying for somebody's uh, physical or emotional healing, helps, because a way of serving, Hospitality uh, is people who do it like with an extra level of supernatural power. Like everybody is supposed to have hospitality, but some people do it as a spiritual gift. They just are really good at hospitality. Knowledge is probably more of a speaking one, actually. Leadership, showing mercy to those who are struggling, uh, serving. These are all listed in other places in Scripture, and there may be others. Uh, What's interesting is the word serve is literally the word to minister. Where do we get the word ministry, right? We use these gifts to minister to one another in the strength God provides, right? Um, uh, these gifts become powerful and effective not just because you have a special ability, but because God empowers you, right? Um, it's filled with a, a power that makes it effective, I remember an old joke. This is a super old joke because I'm a really old guy. But uh, this would be a joke going around of this old timer uh, who lived back in the days when modern technology was being introduced. And he was a farmer. And he, he didn't have any power in anything. You know, he farmed with a horse and a buggy. And, and his son had gone off to college and learned all these newfangled technologies to help him, his dad, right? So one day he just felt bad for his dad out there chopping wood with an axe all the time. So he bought him a chainsaw. And he brought him this new fancy sparkly chainsaws to make his life easier, right? And so he left it with his dad and came back a couple of months later to visit. And he saw his dad out chopping wood again with an axe. And he said, Dad, I bought you this chainsaw. What, why are you using the axe? He goes, the, the saw. He said, why are you still using the axe? He goes, well, I don't know. I said, that, that saw was just more work. I could do it a lot faster with the, with the axe. And so I thought, wow, that's just, that's just crazy. I mean, my dad's good with an axe, but a chainsaw is still going to be a lot faster. So he gets the chainsaw out, and he pulls the thing, and it roars to life. His dad goes, what's that noise? <laughs> Somebody had to think about it. Well, I'll let you think about it. <laughs> right? right? Uh, it's no good without the power on. It's no good without the power on. Right? And, and you know, uh, a lot of us are using our gifts, but not with the power of God. Right? We're just doing it in our own strength. Right? And he says, no, you do it, do it as those who are empowered by God. Right? With the strength, the ability, the capability that he generously supplies. Right? Um, so, so we see that ultimately uh, it's a matter of dependence. Using our, our gifts as a matter of faith and dependence on the power of God to fill us. So that it's the Holy Spirit and the power of God working through us as we minister to one another, as we serve one another. 
And when we need this, right? We need all the gifts operating so that the church grows. And it's how we love each other. That's how we build each other up. It's how we strengthen and equip one another by using our gifts. Uh, so that we serve each other, we minister to each other in ways that are life-impacting and life-changing because it's filled with the power of God. So that, and we come to the end, right? So that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Um, If we're doing ministry in our own strength, God's not glorified in that. If people say, oh, Tim's such a clever guy, um, that's, a, that's not glorifying God. But they say, well, Tim's actually not all that clever, but it's amazing how God uses him anyway. <laughs> that's God glorifying, right? That's God glorifying. And we see that, oh, what's happening here is far beyond uh, what people do. Just a word of testimony. Uh, I don't know if you all realize this or know, but... Um, uh, the worship leaders, they don't usually really know what I'm going to preach. A lot of times I don't really know until Sunday morning. Right? It just kind of pops out. right? And none of you were here last Sunday, but I was just blown away by the songs that Melody had picked that just so brought to life what I had preached on. Right? Is that because we had coordinated this? No. It was because it was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit led and moved and orchestrated things in such powerful ways. Right? Um, God is glorified in that because it's way beyond us. It's way beyond our effort. It's way beyond what we are doing. It's filled with the power of God and it's effective and God is glorified. Um, Let me just close with this last thought. We're out of time. Let me just say this. I hope you see in all this that, um, that there is a priority, there should be a priority in our life around the church on the local fellowship of believers. God is glorified through Jesus Christ preeminently in the church. Paul says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Right? Uh, we don't just glorify God in our individual lives. That's important. Certainly we should glorify him in our private lives. But more significantly and more importantly is how we glorify him together in the, in the body of Christ as the church. Uh, the church is not some kind of afterthought on God's part a nice but mostly unnecessary part of the Christian life and experience. It is vital, not only for our growth, but for the very glory of God. God has, has tagged his, his glory to how we live out the gospel of Christ in relationship with each other in the community of faith. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.